take your Bibles and I want you to turn to what uh, some have called the most neglected book in the New Testament. It's the letter of Jude. The letter of Jude, you'll find that on page 866 of your church Bibles. Uh, and it's, uh, it's, the, it's the next to the last book of the Bible. So go to the book of Revelation and go one back and we're going to read... We're going to read the 25-verse letter of Jude. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Now, that's the James, the letter of James, all right? And James was the half-brother of Jesus, Matthew chapter 13. Well, Jude is the other brother, Okay. To those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their own home, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the very same way, these dreamers, he's talking about those in verse 4 now, These dreamers pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and slander celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against him, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Yet these men, these are the ones back in verse 4 now, speak abusively against whatever they do not understand, and what things they do understand by instinct, like unreasoning animals. Now, these are the very things that destroy them. Woe to them. They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They've been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These men are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they have done in the ungodly way and of all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These men are grumblers and fault finders. They they follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. But 
Dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you in the last times there will be scoffers who follow their own ungodly desires. These are the men who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the Spirit. But you, dear friends, build yourselves up in your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Snatch others from the fire and save them. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. To Him who was able to keep you from falling and to present you before His glorious presence without fault and with great joy, To the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. This is God's word. Now I want you to picture the chairman of our elders, uh, Dan Pack. Stepping up to this stage at the conclusion of our service and in a loving but firm voice informing us that after a thorough investigation by the elders, seven of our nearly 50 small group leaders, uh, three of our adult Bible fellowship teachers, uh, two of the other elders, and one staff person, no less, after a thorough investigation, the elders have concluded that this group, they are heretics. False teachers. Their teaching, their influence, their lifestyle does not reflect the grace and truth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, up till now, they've been able to fly underneath the radar. But their cover's been blown. And they must each publicly repent and recant immediately, or they will face excommunication from Windsor Road Christian Church. And by the way, good morning, everybody, and welcome. Can you, can you imagine that scenario? Can you, can you imagine the chairman of our elders getting up on Sunday morning in a service like that and delivering that kind of news? I mean, I mean, it would have to be pretty bad to warrant that kind of a response, don't you think? I mean, some of you would be flabbergasted. Some of you would say, what? Heresy? False teaching? What's been going on here? Well, I didn't know about this. When did all this happen? Some of you are looking at me like that right now. No, this is just an opening illustration, okay? Others of you would give a sigh of relief. You would say to yourselves, Thank you, Lord. Someone finally has the courage to speak up. Huh? And then what about those of you... Who brought visitors for the very first time? Huh? 
I mean, your cringe meter has to be on tilt right now. And then what about those first-time visitors? Some of them would be thinking, At heresy, uh, time out. I've got my own problems. I don't need to come to a church that has its own problems. See you later, all right? While other first-time visitors whose favorite show is Survivor might think to themselves, heresy? Wow, this could get interesting. I'm going to come back next week to see who gets voted off the island, right? I mean, and then what about the heretics themselves? What about the heretics themselves? Those seven small group leaders and three adult Bible fellowship teachers and two other elders and one staff person, no less. You have a decision to make, don't you? Now, the reason why I concoct this scenario is because this scenario was not concocted in terms of why we have the book of Jude. Scholars tell us that most likely this letter was read at the conclusion of the worship service there in the house church where one of the elders would have gotten up and and we're not talking about a room this size. We're talking about your living room. We're talking about the house churches that just proliferated all across uh, uh, the landscape of the Roman Empire and specifically just outside of the political nation of Israel. We're talking about house churches and we're talking about an elder who gets up and says, brothers and sisters, before we dismiss, and we have a letter from Jude, who is the brother of James, the senior pastor at the uh, church in Jerusalem and, and, and half-brother to Jesus, who just simply identifies himself as a servant and, and, and As he begins to read this letter, I mean, the truth of Jude's letter strips the masks off of stealthy intruders who have invaded the house churches to which this letter is addressed. And all of a sudden, their cover is in fact blown. They had infiltrated the ranks of the Christian community and they're sitting right there in the worship service while the letter's being read. They had come in the name of Christ. They had claimed to teach the truth of Christ. And yet, in reality, they look nothing like Jesus Christ. And they are busted. And now they have nowhere to run. They must repent and recant or be removed. Now, the letter of Jude comes to us in in three different sections here, three different parts. There's, There's three basic questions that the letter of Jude is about. There's the what question, that's in verses 1 through 3. There's the, there's the, the why question in verses 4 through 19. The what question is, what's Jude's point? The why question is, why, why does Jude make his point, verses 4 through 19? And then in verses 20 to 25, there's the how question. How does Jude want us to respond? How does God want us to respond to this situation. So in our series here, I'm going to give an overview today of all three questions, and then over the next three weeks, we're going to pay attention to each question. Let's begin with the what question. The what, the what, the what of Jude's letter has to do with the most precious possession we have as a church family. Do you know what that is, our most precious treasure? That that which is the most valuable possession gift that we have as a church family is the gospel. 
the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Jude is a reminder to every Christian that that the gospel is our most precious treasure. What we offer the world is not some form of self-help. It's not about you being a better you or a nicer you. Our vision as a church family is to be a life-changing community passionately pursuing Christ because Christianity is not principle-based. What we have to offer the community is not seven steps to this, three ways to that. What we have to offer the world what we've received ourselves is the person of Jesus Christ, the gospel. That's what Jude is talking about in verse 3 when he speaks of the faith that was once and for all entrusted. Some of your translations say delivered. You see, Jesus Christ is the gospel. The gospel is what God has done through Christ to rescue us from the dominion of darkness and transplant us into his kingdom. The gospel is Jesus Christ invading this world in rebellion against God on a search and rescue mission. The gospel is 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ died for sins once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body. He was made alive by the Spirit. Do you understand that the gospel is not just Jesus saying something? It's not even Jesus just being something as if you know he came to lead us through example out into a, 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 a larger, more fulfilling life. Rather, the gospel is Jesus giving life. His very own life through his death and through his resurrection. To those of us who were dead in our trespasses and sins. Someone said the gospel can be summarized. Well, the gospel can be summarized in one word, Jesus. It can also be summarized in four words. Here it is. I will give you. I will give you. That's the gospel, church family. Jesus said, come unto me and I will give you. I will give you. We we say, Lord, I cannot give you anything. He doesn't need anything. Salvation is not about us giving anything to God. It's what he gives to us. That's our salvation. And therefore, the gospel is not just information. The gospel is not curriculum. The gospel is God's very own transformative power. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for the salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is God's very own blessing, God's very own inheritance that he gives to us. And the gospel is God's very own glory. And when I think about that... um, my mind goes back to our trip that we just got back from this past week, the Dominican. Uh, about 40 of us returned Tuesday night from a fantastic week uh, in uh, Santiago with Go Ministries in the Dominican Republic. It was my first time to go, and it was just, I was just so I- incredibly blessed to be a part of, uh, of our group that went. We, we've got... We've got about 40 other people. When they think about our church's vision of being a life-changing community, passionately pursuing Christ, just ask them. They'll tell you with what went on in the Dominican. One morning, it was a week ago Saturday morning, 
uh, I was uh, drinking some coffee, and I went up on the roof, and I saw this amazing rainbow. Can we get it up there? Uh, it, it, it's, uh, it was on the roof of the Go Ministries facility. This slide just doesn't do justice to it. It was the most beautiful, crisp, up-close rainbow that I'd ever seen. And uh, I grabbed uh, Tony, John Marie. I said, come on up here. And uh, we were looking at it for a few minutes, and the others came, and pictures were flashing. It was actually, you can't see this, but it's actually a double rainbow. I have never seen a rainbow so close. And we were just, we were just gazing at the glory of this rainbow. And, and, and all of a sudden, the roof of that building became a chapel. And we just looked up and we just was like, ah, this is, this is glory. Okay. Do you get that? Okay. The Bible says that the angels are doing that right now at the gay, as they gaze at the truth of the gospel. At God becoming flesh and going behind enemy lines to rescue us, to do for us that we cannot do by ourselves. The Bible says that angels long, long to look into these things. They they just gaze at the glory of the gospel. You see, the gospel is how we come to God. Paul said to the Corinthians, I gave you birth through the gospel. When we talk about being a life-changing community, it's because Jesus has regenerated us. The gospel has brought us to life. And furthermore, the gospel is how we grow after we are converted. You never outgrow your need for the gospel. The gospel is not just the one, two, three, or the ABCs of Christianity, and then I go on to learn some other things. The gospel is the A to Z of all of Christianity. The gospel is the solution to every problem that we face as Christians. It is the key to each closed door, and it is the power through every barrier. So that's why the gospel is our most precious treasure. It's what gathers us. It's what brings us to God. It's what grows us. And therefore, Jude says that it must be guarded. And that's the point of Jude. Guard the gospel. Always, always be on guard for the gospel. Like the secret service always being on guard for the president. Like a virus scanning program always being on guard for malicious software. The letter of Jude calls our church family then and now to guard and protect and preserve and defend and contend with and agonize and to fight for the most precious treasure that's been deposited into our lives, the gospel. You know, Jude reminds us that there are some things worth contending for. Sometimes church people kind of get the reputation of just kind of being, you know, kind of passive and pansies and non-confrontational. We don't want to ruffle any feathers. Jude says baloney. Some things are worth contending for. In in fact, in in verse 3, the word contend is the same word which the Apostle Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 9.25 when he says, everyone who competes or contends in the games goes into strict training. Now let me tell you, first century Rome was just as sports crazy as we are today. Stadiums and gymnasiums 
and coliseums and mini coliseums peppered all over the empire, they would have connected with this word contend. And in fact, if you transliterate the word contend into English, you get the word agony, agonize, always agonize for the gospel. That's the what of Jude. But why is Jude so urgent about this? Why does, you know, why the full port, uh, the full court press, even to the point of, of changing what he was originally going to write? You recall Jude saying that there in verse three, he said, he said, I was, I was, I was eager at first to write to you about the salvation we share. He, you know, he wanted to talk about something else. He wanted to talk about our common salvation. He wanted to encourage them the way the Apostle Paul did as he began Ephesians chapter 1. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. I mean, that was Jude's original plan, to, to meander through the master gardener's tour of God's salvation in Christ. But I'm telling you, what we just read is no master gardener's tour, is it? It's a minefield. It's a war zone infested with hidden explosives. Jude tells of enemy intruders, imposters in the pew, heretics whose false teaching is not at first easily detected. But as time passes, lessons are taught, and lifestyles are observed. Two unmistakable facts surface in verse 4. Did you see them? These false teachers are twisting God's grace into lust. And secondly, they deny the absolute sovereignty of Jesus Christ, who alone is king and emperor. Their false teaching, their heresy, had to do with sexual immorality and spiritual insubordination. They refuse to accept the gospel, and they refuse to live the gospel. And they're the teachers! This is a problem. It's interesting that the word gospel in the first century was originally not given to us as a religious term. Did you know that? It was originally given as a political term. The word gospel in Jude's world literally meant the accession of Caesar into power. So when Tiberius or Nero came to power, the imperial heralds would go about saying, you know, that, that Caesar is, that they would, they would not say, the imperial heralds would not go around saying, listen, there's this new experience that you might want to try and emphasize, namely, you might want to give allegiance to Caesar if that suits you and if where you are right now in your own personal journey now makes sense. They would not say that. They would say, Tiberius is emperor, get down on your knees. And Jude is saying, Jesus is emperor. Now kneel. Kneel. But some of them refuse to kneel. They're in the church. Among the leadership. (laughs) This is a problem. And Jude wants us to be on guard. He wants us to be on guard against those who would twist God's grace into lust. He wants us to be on guard against those who would spin God's grace into an ungodly lifestyle and then proceed to teach in a manner that justifies the lifestyle. And he talks about this in verses 5 through 19. He he talks about this using examples and illustrations which would have been very current to his audience. In In fact, Jude uses illustrations both inside 
the Hebrew Bible and outside the Hebrew Bible. For instance, in verse 6, he gives some illustrations from inside the Hebrew Bible. That sexually immoral incident in Genesis 6 involving the sons of God, angels, lusting after human, the daughters of men. And then he quickly goes on to another example. In verse 7, he cites Sodom and Gomorrah. And look down at verse 11. He alludes to Balaam's error of enticing God's people to sexual sin for his own profit. But interestingly enough, Jude not only uses illustrations inside the Hebrew Bible, he goes outside the Hebrew Bible. In verse 9, he, to, in order to explain how insubordinate these false teachers were, he quotes from a document called the Testament of Moses where Michael the archangel was in this dispute with Satan about the body of Moses, and not even Michael the archangel would argue with the devil. He just simply said, the Lord rebuke you, meaning I'm not going to get into a debate with someone who's already condemned. And yet Jude's point is that these false teachers are, are so arrogant and so insubordinate that they're doing what the archangel Michael wouldn't do. And then in verse 14, Jude quotes from another source outside the Hebrew Bible. First Enoch, which talks about God's own return with his holy ones to set this world in order. I mean, Jude is not happy with these heretics. In verse 12, he calls them shepherds who fleece the flock. They're waterless clouds. Well, they have the appearance, but they don't have the follow-through. In verse 13, Jude calls them wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame. The foaming up is an image of of grimy, polluted foam from the ocean that slimes itself on anything it touches. For our purposes, think oil slick. That's That's who these heretics are, Jude says. In verse 16, they're called grumblers and fault finders. Now, just back up for a minute. Let's ask, what is driving all of this? What is driving all of this? And in a sentence, it's verse 19. They do not have the Spirit. They had rejected the Holy Spirit, and so all that's left is their own. Could their error ever be ours, church family? You know, what's going on in my life right now that might suggest that I'm living in a way that shows that maybe I don't have the Holy Spirit leading my life? It's a hard question, but Jude calls the question. Jude is asking me, are there ways in which I refuse to let the Holy Spirit lead me? Is there an idol other than Jesus before whom I'm being tempted to bow? Even if it's a a good thing in and of itself, a good thing becomes a bad thing when we make it a God thing, right? Jude reminds me that whenever I take the crown off of Christ's head, I'm going to put it on someone else's head, and it's probably going to be my own. Jude reminds me that whenever I dethrone Christ, that throne is not going to stay empty. Someone else is going to sit in it, and that someone else, if Jesus is not in it, is going to be me. And Jude warns that if I succumb to the behavior that he is warning this church family about, I will become, look at verse 10, an unreasoning animal. An unreasoning animal. I get myself caught up into a situation. 
I mean pastors and elders and church leaders and Christians find themselves caught up, baited by temptation, and they take the bite into sin, and then afterwards, some of them are so deluded that they say, well, God, God, God put this desire in my heart. How could it be wrong? And that's what Jude's talking about there in verse 10. I want you to listen to this quote here. In retrospect, one of the main reasons I slipped into believing and preaching a distorted doctrine was because of my lack of understanding of what it really means to allow Jesus to be Lord of my life. You know who said that? Jim Baker. In his book, I Was Wrong. And his point, and Jude's point, is that the gospel always produces godliness. Always. Always. Titus 1.1 speaks of the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. The gospel is always about rescuing us from darkness and never promoting darkness. And so to effectively guard the gospel, we need to live the gospel. Guard the gospel? You guard the gospel because some are wanting to twist God's grace into lust. Some are wanting to say, well, I'm going to go ahead and sin anyway because God will just forgive me. That's his business. (laughs) Jude says, hold it. Hold it right there. That that attitude needs to be combated. Now, how is it going to be combated? Well, that's, that's the third question that Jude gives us. Verse 22 says, I want you to be merciful to those who doubt. Snatch others from the fire and save them. To others, show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. These are amazing words, aren't they, church family? I mean, Jude has spent most of his letter warning the church family against these heretics. Me has nothing kind to say about them. And I'm just expecting Jude to say, okay, here's how to deal with the problem. Shoot to kill. You know... Uh, But no, that's not what he says. He says, be merciful to those who doubt. He says, keep yourselves in the love of God. I mean, you know, we don't confront others. We don't confront others by means of the the Jack Bauer school of repentance. Okay? Now, a few weeks ago, I mentioned that we are to be as ruthless as Jack Bauer at rooting out the sin in our own hearts. But we are not to be like Jack Bauer in terms of rooting out the sin in other people's hearts. You know, can you can you just hear that? Your right eye has caused you to sin. I'm going to cut it out. This is going to be fun. That's not what we teach here. Okay. Jude says that the way through is the way of love and the way of mercy. Keep yourselves... In the love of God as we wait for the mercy of the Lord Jesus. We live in love and we wait in mercy. And why? Because we have received mercy. That's why. We're merciful because there may come a day when we wrestle with doubt. And pastors do. And elders do. And teachers do. And we struggled with that. You know what? We struggled with that question. Uh, on one of our days in the Dominican Republic, the entire day, our devotional was about dealing with doubt. 
And it's easy to do that where we were. And it's easy to do that whenever you go on a missions trip uh, because we've got uh, a trip to El Paso coming up here uh, uh, shortly to see Greg. Um, and uh, then we've got a trip to Peru. And we're just going to be there for a short time. It's, it's easy to succumb to doubt. And the doubt is this. Satan comes to you and, and Satan says, what good can you possibly do in such short amount of time? What good can you possibly do, you know? You know, you spend mental, emotional, intellectual, physical, financial resources going to the DR, going to Peru, going to Nepal, going to El Paso. Uh, what, can you, what difference is it going to make? And what we talked about is that we're a part of a bigger picture. Go Ministries is about the building of cathedrals. And that takes time. And someone else will pick up where we left off And then, Lord willing, should we return again next year, we'll pick up where someone else left off. And when those doubts come, when those, and they will come, because that's part of our, that's part of our journey. I want you to remember, you know what? Is there really such thing as a brand new doubt? That the thing that you're doubting God about right now, whether it's finances, whether it's your job situation, whether it's employment, the thing that you're doubting God of, whether it's health concern, My hunch is that's not the very first time anybody's ever doubted like you. It may feel that way. The faith that has once and for all been delivered wasn't delivered to us yesterday. We belong to a lineage. There's a heritage. Our spiritual ancestors, some of them struggled with the very same issues that you're struggling with. I promise you that. And I'm I'm talking about the apostles. I'm talking about Ignatius, Irenaeus, Augustine, Martin Luther, C.S. Lewis, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And we can draw strength from their struggles to learn how they dealt with those doubts. And we don't have to be afraid to, to answer the hard questions. And we don't have to be alone. You see, Judas saying in verse 20, build yourselves up. Don't go at it alone. You need to be in community. We're a life-changing community passionately pursuing Christ. And we we were encouraged through our doubt while we were in the Dominican Republic in a very intentional way. Mike King and uh, John Folsom, uh, along with Jason's leadership, we each had a secret encourager. And all throughout the week, people would receive encouraging words secretly given as notes or gifts or presents. And a couple of times I got bread. I love bread. And and then at the very last night, you know, there was an unveiling. And the entire week went so well, I think, because we intentionally encouraged one another. And that's what needs to happen all of the time here. But Jude reminds us, as even as important as these are, as important as building yourselves up in the most holy faith and prayer and encouraging and keeping yourselves in God's love, you know what? They're not foolproof. They're not. Even these won't keep us from falling. You see, the fact is, church family, you cannot keep yourself from falling. You can't. And you can't keep anybody else from falling. And you cannot 
present yourself blameless before God's glory or anybody else. You can't. You can't. You can't, but there is one who can. Isn't that what verse 24 says? Now to him who is able to keep you, Jesus, who delivered God's people from Egypt, Jesus, who will one day return with 10,000s of his holy angels to eradicate all ungodliness, Jesus, who keeps both past and future secure. Did you know that Jesus Christ right now is keeping and guarding and preserving and, and sustaining the health of our church family? Now to Him who is able to keep you, fallen angels and wilderness rebels and spiritual imposters are kept for punishment, but, but we are kept for salvation. And so while God wants us to always guard the gospel, God does not want us to forget that while we are guarding the gospel, He's guarding us. And He's keeping us. And there's no one who wants you in heaven more than the Lord of heaven. And that's why Jude begins in verse 1 with those who are called and loved and kept. And that's why he concludes with now to him who is able to keep you. And that's, that truth is what leads Jude, the other brother of Jesus, <laughs> the one who grew up with him and yet chooses to only identify himself as servant, servant of the Lord Jesus. Such confidence and assurance leads Jude to conclude with worship. Worship. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling. To him who is able to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Savior be glory, and majesty, and power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages now and forevermore. And all God's people said,